All right. Hey, Grace family. I recorded uh, our sermon, or re, really re-recorded it, rehashed it as a podcast with separate audio equipment last week, and I was so pleased with the way uh, the audio turned out that I thought, you know what, I'll just go ahead and maybe keep doing this. I'm going to try it again this week. If you like it, let me know. If you'd rather just have the service recording, that's fine. But I'm going to try this again this week. So let's just jump right in. Our scripture today is from the Gospel of Mark again. It's Mark 8, chapter 31, verses, uh, excuse me, Mark 8, verse 31 uh, through 38. Reading here from the New Revised Standard Version. It says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So we are today skipping the reading from the first Sunday of Lent because we missed it right with all the weather and stuff. And so we're jumping right into week two. It just so happens that this passage is just before our reading from last week, which was actually the reading from Transfiguration Sunday. So last week we looked at that transfiguration, how one of the things it reveals to us is the nearness and availability of the kingdom of the heavens that parallel dimension of reality in which God dwells and reigns. Today, we're going to take a step back to look at some of the moments immediately surrounding our high mountain experience of the transfiguration in Mark's gospel to hopefully get a picture of something else going on here. And before we move on, I want to remind you of our approach here at Grace Church to discipleship and spiritual formation. First, We are addressing our narratives. Remember, our narratives are the deeply held beliefs, often ones we aren't even aware of, that guide our actions in life. As we encounter the vision of the gospel of the kingdom given to us by Jesus, we allow his narratives of reality, that is, of the good news of how things really are, to challenge and confront our deeply held beliefs and ideas. We do this reflectively, allowing Jesus' words to dig deeply into us. This is often a painful process, for this is literally the process of changing your inner life, your character, our hearts, our core identity even. Second, we we utilize spiritual disciplines to help shape our hearts. We do things like these disciplines with our bodies to indirectly change our character, our hearts, our wills, our spirits, our identities. Months ago, I taught about the left and right brain uh, from the book The Other Half of Church, uh, or the slow track and fast track, and how the fast track, our right brain, is responsible for our character and identity. This is what we're working to change in the process of spiritual formation. It is synonymous with our heart, spirit, 
or will. Finally, we do all this in the midst of a devoted community of love. This devoted community is so important because it is the only way genuine discipleship can ever take place. You will necessarily encounter ideas that bother you, that confront your deeply held beliefs. You may not even realize you have a deeply held belief until it's confronted, but when it is, oh boy, you'll get upset. Do not run away from that feeling. Lean into it. Allow yourself to be challenged because you want to grow, because you want to learn how to do the things Jesus said to do. And I'm reminding you of this today because the content of this message, that is what Jesus himself presents in the passage we just heard, has the potential to upset you as we start unpacking it. So, but, but, uh, but again, that is what we are all about here as disciples of Jesus. We want our narratives to be confronted with his, don't we? We want to see and understand reality the way he does, don't we? I'm not going to take it too far today, but I will say if you will follow through with some of these key ideas, if you will sit with them and really think them through, you will find yourself beginning to see things from a very different light. When we change the light, the entire scene can look different, right? We can still see it. It's familiar, but you can suddenly see things you couldn't see before. And you can see the same things in different ways. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what the kingdom of God does. Much like Jesus' transfiguration glow, realizing the nearness of heaven can dramatically alter our perspectives. So this passage, it begins with Jesus saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. He said this quite openly. He was explicit. Jesus often spoke to the crowd and disciples somewhat cryptically, but on this point, the scripture says he was telling them plainly. What did he tell them plainly? The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, killed, and rise again. He says this must happen. One of our challenges with being familiar with the biblical story is that we are already aware of where this is going, don't we? We know what Jesus is talking about. In this Lenten season especially, we are aware that Jesus will go to Jerusalem, be tried, crucified, and raised from the dead. But it's important for us to remember as readers of this story that the characters in this story Jesus' first disciples in this case, they don't know these things yet. It's easy for us to gloss over this point and just read it in light of what has already taken place, but we need to find ourselves in this story if we're to truly grapple with it. Like the first time you watched one of your favorite films, right? During your first participation in that story, you did not know how things would turn out. You were as much in the story as the reader or watcher as were the characters themselves. You need to learn to find yourself reading the Bible this way too, like it's the first time all over again. 
In the words of Dallas Willard, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, unsuspected unfamiliarity, and then contempt. People think they have heard the invitation. They think they have accepted it or rejected it, but they have not. So come at this with fresh eyes today. If you can, when you do, Peter's response and Jesus' response, which follows, will come alive to you in a new way. And not just that, but the rest of the narrative on the way to Jerusalem as well, the triumphal entry, we commemorate commemorate on Palm Sunday, the crucifixion and resurrection as well. All of it starts to make more sense what it is really that Jesus was up to. The passage says next, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Rebuke is a very strong word, right? Why in the world would Peter rebuke Jesus? I mean, who does he think he is, right? Again, let's look at this with some fresh eyes. If we go back just a little bit earlier in Mark's gospel, as in literally just the four verses before this passage, this exchange takes place. It says this, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people, that's other people, say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am. Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then our passage, then he began to teach them that the son of man must undergo great suffering. So Peter's rebuke is issued to the person he believes to be the Messiah. But why? And for this, we need to go further back in the story yet again, much much further back, actually, this time to the book of Daniel. The title used to refer to Jesus most frequently in the New Testament are Christ and Lord. But neither of these are the title that Jesus himself used most frequently to refer to himself. Instead, the title Jesus used most frequently regarding his own self was the phrase, Son of Man as in our passage this morning, the Son of Man must. This is an interesting and perhaps to us modern readers somewhat cryptic phrase, but it stands to reason that Jesus' use of this title for himself so frequently might tell us something pretty significant about what Jesus thought about himself, who he understood himself to be, what he understood his vocation to be, who he is, and what he is to be about. So back to the prophet Daniel and the book bearing his name. In Daniel 7, there are visions of four great beasts representing four earthly kingdoms which exercise dominion in the world. These beasts or kingdoms were terrifying, hideous, and very powerful. And then the ancient one, that's God, appears to sit in judgment over the kingdoms of the world. And then Daniel says in verses 13 and 14, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one 
that will not be destroyed. So the dominion and power exercised by the great beasts, the kingdoms of the world, was taken and given to one like a son of man, who becomes Lord of all and reigns over all people of every nation and language in a new kingdom that will never end. Wow. Wow. So if this is the phrase Jesus uses to identify himself, do you think it might tell us something about what he believes he's up to? Absolutely. He is identifying himself and his vocation with this figure in Daniel 7. So then why Peter's rebuke? The people of Jesus' time knew all about revolution or attempted revolution, really. They knew all about messianic figures who would rise up, hoping God would act and deliver them from oppression, only to be crucified in the end. One of the most notorious was less than 200 years before this time by a man named Judas Maccabeus. Judas never claimed to be the Messiah himself, like many of the other contemporary uh, revolutionaries at the time had, but many people thought he was, and it was his successful revolution and the subsequent rededication of the temple, known as the Maccabean Revolt, that is now commemorated in the annual celebration of Hanukkah by Jewish people today. Judas and his followers were all eventually killed, and Jerusalem was ultimately recaptured by Herod just a generation prior to Jesus' birth. So they succeeded, but it didn't last forever. So again, these people around Jesus, they were well acquainted with messianic figures, attempted revolutions, and a hope for violent overthrow of their oppressors. They were hoping for one like a son of man who would build an everlasting kingdom. They were hoping for a real Messiah, one who would not be defeated. This is who Jesus understands himself to be. So when Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, you have to understand there's a great deal of baggage that comes with that confession. And they knew there were risks involved, as with all previous attempts at revolution. They could die. They knew this. And with the beheading of John the Baptist lingering in recent memory, they were all the more aware of it. But Peter's hope was nonetheless for a new king who would overthrow their Roman oppressors and establish an everlasting kingdom, like Daniel 7 says. This, I hope, should help make sense of Peter's rebuke. How can you be the Messiah if you have to go suffer and die? That doesn't make sense. That's exactly what we're trying to avoid here, Jesus. We want to reestablish our dominion over this land and establish a new kingdom. How can we establish a new kingdom if our king just waltzes in and dies? So what does Jesus do in response? He rebukes Peter right back. First, he turns to his disciples and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Whoa, harsh. He says, For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now then, does that statement make more sense to you? You are setting your mind on human things, not divine things. This is what I must do. This is the only way the kingdom of the ancient one arrives 
It must happen. As harsh as that statement sounds, I want you to let it remind you of the last time Jesus confronted Satan, the accuser in Mark's gospel. It happened all the way back in the first chapter, in verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. How was he being tempted by Satan? Luke's gospel, of course, goes into greater detail in verses 5 through 7 in chapter 4. It says, Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Hmm. Hmm. That sounds like Daniel 7, doesn't it? Let's continue. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority. Again, that sounds like Daniel 7. For it has been given to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So please notice something here. The glory and authority, the dominion of these kingdoms of the world, speaks to exactly who Jesus believes himself to be and what he is to be about. Do you see this? Satan tempted Jesus with his very destiny, the thing he came to do. He could have had it. Without the disciples, without the healing, without the miracles, without the teaching, without the trial, without the agony of crucifixion, Jesus could have had his destiny minus the pain. Minus what? Back to Mark 9. Minus the suffering, rejection, and death. For those of you familiar with uh, the Lord of the Rings, this is Gandalf's rejection of the ring from Frodo. Don't tempt me, Frodo. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe. Understand, Frodo, I'd want to use this ring from a desire to do good, but through me it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine. The ring is earthly power. Satan tempted Jesus with power over the kingdoms of the world, and no doubt if Jesus had accepted this offer, he would have desired to use it for good, but it would not have been the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens. And as Jesus responds to Satan, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Hashtag, this is not the way. Jesus is making this very plain to Peter in this moment. No, Peter, this is not the way. The kingdom of God will only be established by self-sacrificial love, not through violent force, not through violent revolution. I must suffer and die at the hands of the very people I'm dying for. Peter's expectation was of worldly power, of the one ring to rule them all. His mind was on human things, but Jesus' way is not of worldly power. It is the way of the crucified Savior. It is the way from above. It is the way of self-sacrificial love. It is the way of dying for the people who hate you because they just don't understand and you love them anyway. After this moment, Jesus turns to the rest of the crowd and says, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To follow Jesus is to set your mind on the things from above, on divine things, not on worldly things, not on human things. 
For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. To follow Jesus into the kingdom of God is to relinquish your kingdom, whatever that may be. A kingdom is simply the domain in which the ruler exercises their influence and control. And you do not get to rule your kingdom and follow Jesus. You must submit the domain in which you exercise influence and control your life to the king. And believe me, I know how hard that sounds. And so did the people following Jesus around the countryside. Why do you think the crowd got smaller and smaller on the way to Jerusalem? In our day, you may not have to die for this cause, certainly not be crucified, but you must relinquish control. And again, this is a process. It will not happen overnight, and it will always be painful. Letting go is never easy. But as Jesus shows us time and again, God is good, and you can trust him. It's immediately after this exchange in the story that Jesus then leads Peter, James, and John up the mountain to witness this transfiguration experience we looked at last week. It is a way of showing them, look, I know I just wrecked your worldview, but look at me, only me. I really am who I say I am. I will do this. You can trust me. I'll close today with a reflection on this reality from the Apostle Paul. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4, through 4, he says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears or is revealed, then you also will appear or be revealed with him in glory. This week, my discipline or exercise or task for you is very simple. I want you to commit this passage to memory. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, whatever translation you prefer. And I want you to reflect on these two questions. What would it look like for me to set my heart, again, that's your spirit or will, what would it look like for me to set my heart on things above? And what would it look like for me to set my mind on things above? Can we do that this week? I hope so. That's all I have for you today. We'll be back next week. Uh, Not me personally, but uh, we'll have a guest speaker, Pastor Ryan Aldaffer from, I believe he's over in Chattanooga, Tennessee still. Uh, He's a great friend of ours, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to share for us. We'll have that for you next Sunday. But for now, uh, I love you guys, and we will see you as soon as we see you.